This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 40, titled The Manic Pixie and the Magical Negro, a.k.a. The Case of the Runaway Archetype. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. Great. Did you have fun at uh, Xander's first birthday party? I did. I did. That is one adorable, massive chunk of baby you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a big guy. Can I uh, sum up your visit to the party? All right. You show up four hours late, uh-huh. eat a bunch of food, which I had to, by that time, extract from the refrigerator. Uh-huh. Played a song on your iPhone by Charles Manson. And how would you characterize that song? <laughs> it was pretty good. Stunningly magnificent. Go ahead. Uh, you had a couple beers, and then you left. Wait, but I brought a present. You did. You brought, you brought Sander a bottle of champagne. <laughs> My guess was that you were pretty much awash in onesies. And uh, stuffed animals. So I just thought I would get something that's uh, that's useful and not in primary colors. Thank you. I appreciate it. More a gift for the parents than the baby, but thoughtful. Yeah. So today's episode is a little bit of a departure for us. It's about two phrases that identify two different cultural archetypes coined by two different people, both of whom have now become disenchanted, I guess you'd say, with the coinage. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. But what intrigued us about these cases was the question of whether they had felt a growing stigma to their coinages, even though the stigma was surrounding the the actual phenomenon that they had identified. With that as prologue, 
let's just say that this is not your uh, grandfather's Lexicon Valley that we're fixing to do. <laughs> so let's stop being cryptic here. Let's just jump right into the first term, which is manic pixie dream girl, which is a kind of cultural trope, especially in movies, but also in books. Bob, how would you describe that character type? Mm-hmm. She is refreshing. She is eccentric. She is uh, a kind of classic, free-spirited. She probably wears purple tights. And, you know, most importantly, she fulfills the creative and emotional needs of a certain type of man who thinks that he's liberated but actually depends on a certain type of woman to feed his needs. Classic example would be the Natalie Portman character in Garden State, Zach Braff's movie. You know what I do when I feel completely unoriginal? I I make a noise or I do something that no one has ever done before and then I can feel unique again even if it's only for like a second so no one's ever done that no not in this spot no you just witnessed a completely original moment in human history and apropos of this conversation Kirsten Dunst in the uh, movie Elizabeth Town you want to get to 264 and then you want to not miss 60B I'm going to be obnoxious about that. Bins are strangely delightful and very intuitive. Complex, almost too complex to be around. Do you know any bins? And it was in writing about the movie Elizabethtown back in 2007 that the critic Nathan Rabin coined the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl, or as it's often referred to, MPDG. And it just takes off. It becomes damn close to a meme and... Over the next seven or eight years, it is now ubiquitous to describe this type, which it turns out is not new to this generation, but has been around since, you know, at least the 1930s. He would later write, and I'll quote from him now, I remember watching Elizabethtown and being distracted by the preposterousness of its heroine. Kirsten Dunst's psychotically bubbly stewardess seemed to belong in some magical otherworldly realm, hence the pixie, offering up her phone number to strangers and drawing whimsical maps to help her man find his way. It's an archetype, I realized, that taps into a particular male fantasy of being saved from depression and ennui by a woman who sweeps in like a glittery breeze to save you from yourself, then disappears once her work is done. Oh, he just absolutely nailed it. I mean, the description is <laughs> it's accurate and trenchant as can be. But, by the way, although he was panning Elizabethtown, I really liked it. And I liked it mainly because I wanted Kirsten Dunst's character to come save me. So count me among the narcissistic men who uh, <laughs> who look to some magical two-dimensional female notion to make you know me feel better about myself regular listeners of this podcast bob would expect nothing more of you at this point <laughs> yeah that's that's probably true but while rabin coined this term to in a sense flag this character type as inherently sexist he noticed that over the years as it took on a life of its own the term manic pixie dream girl began to not so much stigmatize this character type but actually perpetuate it and validate it. And his epiphany evidently 
was a comment by Zoe Kazan, who is the director and author and star of Ruby Sparks, a movie with a quirky title character. She'd been asked, was Ruby Sparks a manic pixie dream girl? And she's like, no, no. And by the way, not only isn't she a manic pixie dream girl, she thinks the whole notion of MPDG is, and, and the term itself is just plain misogynistic. And for those who haven't seen the movie, Ruby Sparks is about a young male author who creates on the page a character named Ruby Sparks, a fantasy of his, who then comes to life. I go to sleep at night just waiting to get to my typewriter again so I can be with her. It's like, it's like I'm falling in love with her. That's wonderful. No, it's not. I can't fall in love with a girl I write. Why not? Because she's not real. It seems, and more about this in a few minutes, it seems to be a critique of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. In any case, Rabin has now disavowed the term, even calling on critics to stop using it. He wrote a piece in Salon some weeks ago. I'll quote from it. He says, I coined the phrase to call out cultural sexism and to make it harder for male writers to posit reductive, condescending male fantasies of ideal women as realistic characters. But I looked on queasily as the phrase was increasingly accused of being sexist itself. And now he agrees that the term is itself sexist. And that's what piqued our interest. Because what we both wondered initially, and I I think our paths have somewhat diverged at this stage, but what we both wondered originally was whether he was mistaking the language that he coined and the insidious type that it was describing, conflating the thing with the words describing the thing. And we wanted to talk to him and, and, you know, hold his feet to the fire on that very subject. And we did. Right, we did. And in going back and listening to the interview, I decided, Bob, that it was more interesting without me in it for some reason. So I ended up taking myself (laughs) out of it. Uh, And I I hope you found a life lesson in that process. Yes, I'll admit, most things are more interesting without me in it. The first thing we asked him was if he remembered sort of what he thought when he actually wrote those words, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, back in 2007. So here's Raven. When I typed the phrase manic pixie dream girl, I thought, you know, it sounds good. It's a group of words that sound good together. When you're writing reviews, when you're writing about the culture, a lot of times you have two aims, one of which is you want to capture what you're writing about. You want it to be accurate. The other thing is you want it to sound good, to be entertaining in its own right. So I felt like that was something that I really did well with the phrase manic pixie dream girl. It sounds so good together, Nathan, that it seems as if it had existed before you typed the words. You so nailed the concept, so identified a familiar type, that it was as if there was always this term of art, manic pixie dream girl, and you were just invoking it, not inventing it. Thank you. Well, I think that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about this whole thing is that I'm not the inventor of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. This is something that existed for a long time. I coined the phrase. Nobody likes to be labeled, but they're also really, really useful. So I think that's also where maybe some of the problems came from was I created a really useful label, but it was still a label. But of course, what it was labeling was a type, a stock character, 
familiar in films going back to the 30s. And hold that thought because I'm going to use it against you in a few minutes as, as we proceed with this conversation. You've had a love-hate relationship with this coinage, have you not? Oh, yes. Yes, very much so. And I definitely had, you know, kind of an emotional arc of my own with it, where at the beginning I was really, really flattered when people were interested in the label, you know, when people used the phrase. That was lovely, and it was so nice to have all these people talking about this idea and addressing, you know, this strain of sexism that had existed in the movies and television and books for a very, very long time. But there came a certain point where I didn't want people to tell me about the phrase anymore, where I became kind of sick of it, where I felt like it had been used too much, that it had been over-applied, that it had gone from being sort of a useful tool to address and call out sexism to being a cliché. You know, I think maybe a phrase that would be analogous to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl would be like the Magical Negro. Let's just clarify what the reference is. Magical Negro refers to uh, about 80% of Morgan Freeman's roles. Right, right, right. It's a similar sort of idea, you know, of this African-American character who has sometimes literally magical properties as in movies like, you know, The Green Mile, or they just kind of exist to help out sort of white people with their problems. And, and again, it's the same kind of thing where on one hand it's supposed to be positive because you're portraying African-Americans as being and having this magical spiritual air to them. At the same time, you're kind of reducing and removing their humanity by putting them on this realm of, you know, supernatural or, or superhuman people. Now, Nathan, the reason we're having this conversation with you is not because you coined Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but because you disavowed it. And your rationale for disavowing it made us go, what? Yeah. And our purpose here is to interrogate you as to whether you're uncomfortable with the language or the phenomenon itself, and whether you think you have yourself are somehow culpable for this sexism or misogyny some have attached to the term. I think what I'm really uncomfortable with is the phenomenon. There were two kind of currents motivating this article, one of which was this cantankerous, cranky old man, you know, stop abusing my term. Part of what, you know, really frustrated me about this was that the term was used and was applied to characters that were created specifically to challenge the concepts of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, or that, you know, whether or not consciously created to, really examined this phenomenon. A good example would be Clementine in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, this brilliant, brilliant character who, again, the context of that movie it really challenges, you know, this notion of, you know, men and their inability to see women as they really are and their inability to see women as fully dimensional people. Too many guys think of a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. It's like satire. It's often mistaken for what it's attacking, for what it's satirizing. It's kind of the same thing as like these characters that attack the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, attack this trope, were being confused for Manic Pixie Dream Girls. And I could understand how that would be so frustrating and, and so unfair to people who are very anti-sexism and have thought long and hard about representation of women in media. 
and then the other part of it was let's make the world so positive and empowering, genuinely empowering for women that these kinds of archetypes can be a thing of the past. In a world of Hollywood portrayals of women where so many of them are drawn to meet the pathetic needs of men, sex kittens, femme fatale, nodding sympathetic wives, the lack of meaty roles for women is, has been endemic for the whole history of film and theater. And of all things to focus on, the manic pixie dream girl, who at least has personality, she's eccentric, she's interesting. Let's just say I've always been particularly susceptible to the very type that you've identified, and probably for exactly the reasons that you've identified. But I feel better about having her as my dream girl than uh, Halle Berry in Catwoman. Well, I think that's part of what makes it so insidious as we, you know, see explicitly overtly sexist movies and we can understand that. Whereas, you know, what makes the Manapixie Dream Girl so toxic is that it appears to be such a positive thing and such an empowering character and an archetype for women when in fact it really is not. And you're right. I mean, my God, Hollywood is, is filled with sexism. It is absolutely grotesque. And it's important to attack sexism wherever we find it, not just where it is most overt, not just in Transformers Age of Extinction, not just in the movies of Michael Bay. It's very, very tricky and dangerous when something that appears to be so positive and so empowering is actually fundamentally, you know, underneath everything, condescending. Oh, it's the devil in disguise. Uh, yeah, I, that's kind of the same thing with a magical Negro. On one hand, people could be like, well, that's really positive. Think of all those ugly, horrible depictions of African Americans throughout the years. And now you're saying that it's problematic, that there are these wonderful people who just want to help out? Yes, that is really problematic. And it's important to examine why do we keep coming back to this fantasy? Why do we keep coming back to it? What role does it fill for us emotionally as a society and as individual viewers? Both of them fill this really powerful fantasy, you know, that's persistent throughout time, but also one that's pretty dangerous and one that I think really needs to be explored and examined and hopefully last to an earlier era. Like, let's evolve beyond these caricatures and try and create characters who are fully human. Annie Hall is a good example of somebody who is quirky and fun and full of life, but is also fully human and has full autonomy and is a real person that people can identify with, not just as somebody who helps the hero out, but as somebody who is a heroine in her own right. She says, what you do, come right. my way of the Panama right. Canal? I'm in a bad mood. I'm in a bad mood? I'm standing with the cast of The Godfather. You're going to have to learn to deal with it. Deal? I'm dealing with two guys named Cheech. Okay, please, I have a headache, all right? Do you think that if you were to get your wish and the label were to sort of just disappear, is it going to have any effect on movies, on our culture, on our writing, and on our ability to, to let go of this trope? That is a good question, and I think that part of the essay was rooted in magical thinking and the idea that if you take away the label, if you take away the language and the words, then people will stop having that inclination. I think maybe that is 
faulty thinking on my part. Maybe that is a little bit Pollyannish, but I just wanted to put that energy out into the world of let's move beyond this phrase and this idea, both of them at the same time, and on to the next stage of evolution in portrayals of women. Okay, so that's where Rabin is coming from. So, Bob, before we played the Rabin interview, you alluded to this idea that we have since diverged in our thinking on Manic Pixie Dream Girl. What did you mean by that? Well, tell me if I'm misrepresenting your thinking, but I still believe what I believed from the beginning, which is that he has nothing to disavow because all he did was identify a an actual type and accurately describe its function, but there's nothing about coming up with such a fantastic term that makes him responsible in any way for the thing itself. And you've come to, I believe, around to the idea that using the term kind of embraces its inherent misogyny. Well, what do you think about Rabin's and Kazan's, for that matter, belief that the term now functions not only to be dismissive or critical of the character type, but also the characters and the actors who portray them, such as Zoe Deschanel, who is often associated with the MPDG in movies like 500 Days of Summer, say. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know exactly what to say. I think she's the perfect iteration of the manic pixie dream girl in that film. But that is not to be dismissive. I mean, the role is the role. She plays it brilliantly. She's charming. And I can see why she might bristle at the idea of being reduced by critics to be some sort of type, but I just don't see why she should take it as some sort of insult that the type she's been asked to play is, in fact, a type. Well, this brings us to the second term, the one that Rabin brought up, in fact, Magical Negro, which was coined sort of, and we'll get to that, Back in the year 2000, by the journalist Christopher John Farley, he at the time was writing for Time magazine. He's now an editor at the Wall Street Journal. Farley was talking about a few different movies, including The Green Mile, that have these sometimes literally, sometimes not, magical characters who are black. And he coined the phrase originally as magical African-American friend, which has since become magical Negro. Now, I spoke with Farley. You did not take part in this conversation, Bob. You were out of the country. And I sort of, I guess you would say, threw you under the bus a little bit, maybe. Not sure. Yeah, how unlike you. (laughs) Okay, well, you haven't heard this conversation. It's very short. I started by asking him essentially the same thing that we asked Rabin at first, which was, what was going through your mind when you wrote that phrase? When I first typed the phrase magical African-American friend, I felt like it was a thing. And the reason it felt like it was a thing is that I'd seen so many movies that seemed to have that character in the movie. And I used to wonder why, because these characters seem to fly in the face of logic, of reality, of the way I knew human beings actually worked. And the movie that stood out to me the most was The Legend of Bagger Vance. It's set in 1930s Georgia. Will Smith plays his magical caddy that helps Matt Damon succeed at golf and life, but also kind of get the girl, Shalise Theron. 
what struck me so false about that is that if, if I'm in 1930s Georgia, I'm using my magical powers to maybe stop a couple lynchings, maybe stop segregation, and I'm probably also using those magical powers to date Charlize Theron myself, not to <laughs> win her over for some other guy. So it just made no sense because I just knew guys didn't operate like that, black men didn't operate like that, human beings didn't operate like that. So I thought, well, why is that happening? And I realized there was this magical African-American friend character, which people later changed to magical Negro, which a term that I'm not a big fan of. Well, let, let's talk about that a sec, because it occurs to me that the words African-American friend kind of morphed into Negro, possibly because the word Negro underscores the fact that these characters typically exist to help out white people. You know, it, a Negro conjures a kind of segregation era subservience, maybe. And I remember in the interview that we did with Nathan Rabin, my co-host Bob, who is not here, so he can't defend himself, but, you know, who cares? When Rabin first mentioned the phrase magical Negro, Bob jumped in and said, let's define the term. It's uh, about 80% of the roles of Morgan Freeman. Rabin and others, including the actress, the screenwriter Zoe Kazan, contend that the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl is now itself sexist, in part because it's dismissive of the actors and it erases distinctions between the characters. Do you think that the term, be it Magical Negro or Magical African American Friend, that that term itself is now somewhat racist, maybe? There's that famous quote that there, there are no small parts, only small actors. The history of black people in Hollywood has been to transform small parts bit parts, into something that's deep and lasting and something that stays with you. And the genius of African-American actors is that they've done it again and again. And The Devil Finds Work, this terrific book-length essay that James Baldwin once wrote, he talks about that, about seeing black people on the fringes of some of the movies that he loved and having them have a, a really visceral impact on him, even though he knew the roles are stereotypical or small. They found some sort of humanity in there so I think just to sort of throw this term magical Negro at people, it seems more aimed at the actor rather than at the, the Hollywood establishment that created the part that was so limiting. And that's just not fair to these working actors who are often transforming these leaden parts into pure gold. And that's something that we really need to respect and even celebrate. In that original article that you wrote in Time magazine in the year 2000, you said, and I'll quote you, you said that the magical African-American friend exists because Hollywood screenwriters don't know much about black people. So instead of getting life histories or love interests, black characters get magical powers. I actually think that the explanation for this trope is even a bit more insidious than that. In the same way that we sometimes invest indigenous peoples with an insight or a wisdom that we believe exists somewhere out of reach of the Western experience, I think that we also invest black characters with a mysticism for a similar reason. In other words, it's a form of othering. Well, you know, we did invent reggae and the blues and rock and roll and hip-hop. So there is a certain kind of magic in African-American culture. Maybe Hollywood got that part right. I think the problem is the failure to imagine characters that have fully realized personas and that they have a sexuality, that they have their own needs they're trying to fulfill on screen. 
having a failure of imagination in Hollywood is the greatest sin you can have as an artist. Chris, thanks so much. Thank you. So, I don't know, what do you think, Bob? Did I, did I treat you unfairly? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm a bit mystified. I don't know how, what would be racist about doing the filmography of Morgan Freeman and seeing that he plays all of these characters who are imbued with some sort of special moral sense that is used to guide the mere white people who he, uh, who he hangs around with. I think if I'm guilty of anything, it's just of agreeing that this is a, a condescending, exasperating archetype. Yeah, you know, I think I agree with you. And I think that I won't stop using these terms, but I will think more about how and when I'm using them. And I'll try to be cautious about not perpetuating the stereotype while trying to invalidate it. All right. Well, you've grown as a person, Mike. (laughs) So I want to mention something else. I had an email exchange with the lexicographer Aaron McKean, who is one of the co-founders of wordnick.com, that really interesting online dictionary. I wanted to know if there was a word, a term for putting something out into the world that you created, that you coined, and then kind of wishing it back because it became somehow unmanageable. It took on a life of its own that was not a life you wanted to see it live. You mean like those recall email messages you sometimes get <laughs> Yeah, after premature sendulation? Right, exactly. Like, forget you ever saw this, erase it from your mind. <laughs> and she brought to my attention a poem called The Purple Cow, which was written in the late 1800s by a guy named Gillette Burgess, who was a critic, a poet, a humorist. He had a magazine called The Lark. And I think this poem appeared in that magazine. It's very short. It goes like this. I never saw a purple cow, I never hoped to see one, but I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. Oh, yeah, I, I, I do recognize that. It's sort of like a proto-Shell Silverstein. A woman named Anita Sylvie, uh, in a book she wrote called Children's Books and Their Creators, says that it was most likely the second most quoted poem of the 20th century behind The Night Before Christmas. And in fact, it inspired a whole bunch of parodies, one of which goes... I've never seen a purple cow. My eyes with tears are full. I've never seen a purple cow, and I'm a purple bull. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I never was a vitamin. I never hoped to be one. But I could tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. <laughs> yeah, I get that one too. Yeah, That's, I really want to slap my thigh in. Then. <laughs> I'm going to make up for the uh, discombobulate. That was really good, Bob. Thank you, Mike. A little, a little bit tardy, but much appreciated. You're welcome. So Burgess, who wrote a lot, had a magazine, I think came to resent that this was what he was most famous for. By the way, he also coined the word, speaking of coinages, he coined the word blurb, Burgess did. Huh. Yeah. So Burgess later wrote this new version of The Purple Cow. Ah, yes, I wrote The Purple Cow. I'm sorry now I wrote it, but I can tell you anyhow... I'll kill you if you quote it. (laughs) What I'm getting at is I think of this now, this idea of putting something out there in the world that you wish you could take back is the purple cow problem. And I think Rabin and perhaps Farley, but maybe less so Farley, suffer from it. In any case, I'm really curious what our listeners think about Manic Pixie Dream Girl and Magical Negro, if these terms have outlived their usefulness, if they're now as offensive as the type they're describing. 
please write to us. Let us know. Our email is lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our podcast feed in iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank Nathan Rabin, who is now a writer for thedissolve.com. Christopher John Farley, who's an editor at the Wall Street Journal. Also, thanks to Aaron McKean for that great observation about the purple cow. And to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of all of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah, we're done. Later, Gator. Later, Gator.